Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that our minds and our hearts and our lives would be open to hear your word and also willing to be transformed by your word within us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in my household, in my family, we love the musical Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton is the story of um, the 18th century founding father, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Um, I could get Caleb or Sarah up to, to give you the whole prologue and give you a bit of uh, context, but I won't because we might be here for another two and a half hours. I think Caleb could sing through the whole of Hamilton, probably pretty much, <laughs> pretty close to it. Uh, but the point is that there are two central characters in um, the musical. Alexander Hamilton, the founding father, this sort of headstrong, fire-in-his-belly revolutionary who wants to kind of, uh, you know, be freed of um, the sort of imperial rule of Britain uh, and wants to establish uh, the American, the United States of America, wants to establish a free America. And, uh, and his sort of erstwhile colleague and... Um, sort of friend and then adversary and opponent, Aaron Burr, who has also got political vision, but is much more gentle and cautious uh, and canny, perhaps, about it. Aaron Burr, early on in the musical, gives Alexander Hamilton some advice. He says, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. And in a way, these two characters, I mean, later on, there's a, there's a scene which I can't quote, really, because, you know, I might get cancelled by somebody, where Alexander Hamilton screams, you must be out of your mind. He's got fire in his belly. And that in a way, what they're showing is two different approaches to politics and power and how to get things done. Is it cards close to the chest? That's kind of Aaron Burr. Or is it cards out on the table for everybody to see? bit more Alexander Hamilton. Well, I suppose the question is, is there another way? Is this all there is? Is there kind of Machiavellian maneuvering with Aaron Burr or kind of headstrong haranguing of Alexander Hamilton? Or is there something else? A way of changing the discussion. Tim Keller, looking at this passage, uh, this uh, account of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and we'll come to that in a moment, that's important, says that we need to understand they were asking a revolutionary question. Jesus was giving them a revolutionary answer. But that further, Jesus was, in a way, setting in motion a revolution within a revolution. He was setting in motion, as it were, a revolt against revolts. We'll get to that in a moment. It's been quite a month for politics. We've had party conference season. We've had by-elections this week. And the question of power in our country and politics, who gets hold of power and how they use it, is very much in our national psyche. And not just our national psyche, it's going on internationally. How is power how our politics played out internationally. And of course, we're witnessing that playing out in conflict in Israel-Palestine, but also continuing in Russia and Ukraine, and lest we forget, also in South Sudan, and indeed in Yemen, and probably countless other places that are not in the news cycle now. 
many of the discussions that Jesus has recorded in the Gospels are about theology. They're about a vision of how to live faithfully before God, about how to be obedient to God. But this one really is a conversation about politics. Often Jesus is debating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are very much religious leaders of his day. But did you notice at the beginning here, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? Well, this is another group that are mentioned by name in the gospel. The group who were, as it were, disciples, followers, accomplices of Herod who liked the political settlement whereby the Romans allowed Herod to be a sort of puppet leader in Israel, who liked having some authority and status and perhaps being able to skim off the top and exercise power and authority. So this is the Pharisees sending with their disciples, with some of their followers, with some of their group, Herodians. Now we need to know a little bit of context when we think about this issue about the tax, this imperial tax. And I just began to read up on this uh, this week. 25 years before these events, uh, Caesar at the time, Caesar Augustus, had introduced a new poll tax, a, a tax simply on being a member of the polis, being alive. Nothing to do with what you earned, just a po- some of us are old enough to remember what poll taxes are. <laughs> some of us, when we were young, marched against poll taxes 25 years before Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees and the Herodians, Augustus had introduced an imperial tax, a tax on being under Roman rule, just merely for being alive and occupied by the Romans. You had to pay a tax at one denarius. It's actually not a huge tax, about a day's wages. Um, But nonetheless, it represented sort of being under, being subject to Roman rule. And uh, at that time, a young firebrand, an Alexander Hamilton, if you will, named Judas the Galilean, not to be confused with Jesus of Galilee, um, Judas the Galilean came to Jerusalem and uh, cleansed the temple, beat people away, throwed over the tables, and he instructed the Jews not to pay the tax to Caesar. He said, the kingdom of God is coming. And we're going to be pure. We won't be ruled by Caesar. For the last 200 years, whenever we hear that phrase, the kingdom of God, we spiritualize it. We think the kingdom of God is here in my heart. But actually, most of human history, kingdoms were about who was in charge and who got to wield the sword and who got to take your money and who owned the land and who exercised power. So when Judas the Galilean was saying the kingdom of God is coming, he really did mean, and he's going to, whip Caesar's butt and kick him out. Judas of Galilean was arrested and he was killed as a revolutionary, put to death. Wind the clock forwards 25 years on and the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and, and, and they ask about this imperial tax. What's just happened earlier on in Matthew 21 and 22? Well, Jesus has cleansed the temple. Jesus has gone into Jerusalem and thrown over the tables of the money changers and said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, my father's house. He has spent the last few years wandering around proclaiming that the kingdom of God is coming. So actually what's going on here 
is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, are not, they're not just asking kind of like, ooh, is there a dodge for getting out of our taxes? They're saying, are you like Judas the Galilean who cleanses the temple, announces the kingdom of God and tells us not to pay tax to Caesar? Are you a revolutionary? Are you a revolutionary? That's what he's being asked. And, and what they're drawing on there is um, sometimes described uh, as the kind of concept of the two spheres. The idea that if you're loyal to one sphere, you know, the, the kingdoms of this world, the powers of this age, then you are automatically not loyal to the kingdom of God. Or, or vice versa, if you're loyal to the kingdom of God, then you must be opposed to the kingdoms of this world, the present authorities and ages. So, so it's very polarized, very binary. We say, if you're a revolutionary, that means you're against Caesar. Surely. Jesus is going to show how the whole sphere of power and authority in this world are actually all contained within the sphere of God's authority. There's actually only one true king. And this is why St. Paul can talk in Romans 13 about being subject to the authorities, for there is no authority other than that established by God. It's why Peter can invite us to pray for rulers and authorities in all godliness and peaceableness. I sometimes imagine this a bit like a Venn diagram. You know Venn diagrams where sort of ovals overlap and circulate. There are bits of earthly authority which overlap with God's sovereign rule. But there are also things that humans do which are outside of God's will, God's purposes. Ultimately, everything, though, will come under his sovereign rule. So here, the Pharisees and the Herodians are deliberately trying to trap, trap Jesus. That's Matthew's comment. It says they want to trap Jesus with his words. And it's Jesus' response, knowing their evil intent. You hypocrites. They're trying to get him to accept the terms of the debate as they see it. You're either loyal to Yahweh, Israel, the nation, the kingdom of God, or you're loyal to Caesar. And Jesus cleverly sees the trap and avoids it. Because it's not just about an unpopular tax that he's being asked about. It's about whether he's a revolutionary and what are you standing for. So they're asking him a revolutionary question about whether he's a revolutionary. And Jesus offers a revolutionary answer, which avoids political simplicity, it avoids political complacency, and it avoids political primacy. Jesus is not binary in politics. So political simplicity might be that idea that you're either you know, loyal to Yahweh and Israel and the kingdom of God, or you are loyal to Caesar. Jesus is saying it's not binary. You can't simplify it all like that. He resists that. He resists political complacency. Political complacency sort of is quietest. It just keeps its head down in one of two ways. Either um, there, were, there was a group in Jesus' day called the Essenes. The Essenes moved out to the desert. And they just lived as a little kind of sectarian commune away from all the fuss in Jerusalem. That's a kind of quietism. That's avoiding the issue. Or there's another way of being politically complacent, which is being complicit like the Herodians. I've got my piece of the pie. I've got my place. And that's just fine. So I won't really raise any questions. So Jesus, in his sort of revolutionary answer, says, avoid political simplicity. It's not binary. 
But it's also, don't be complacent. Don't go and bury your head in the sand like the Essenes, or, or don't just be satisfied with your place in the pecking order like the Herodians. But also don't let the politics become the main thing, political primacy. The Pharisees were longing to find out whether uh, Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who would overthrow Roman occupation and Roman rule. It, it was the main thing for them. They needed the overthrow. They needed the freedom. The politics was too big for the Pharisees. Jesus instead just changes the terms of the debate and the terms of the question. He looks at this uh, denarius. He says, bring me a denarius. This is noteworthy. He didn't have one with him. He didn't have one in his pocket. He said, you're going to have to bring me one. And he looks at this coin. The coin bears the image of uh, Caesar. And it actually had an, inst an inscription around it as well, uh, saying that Caesar was the high priest. So it's a claim to be king, a claim to be son of the gods, claim to be high priest. Jesus says, well, if this bears his image, if this is his, just give it back to him. Give him, give him it is. Actually, uh, I learned, uh, listening to a podcast about this, that all of these coins, these denarius coins, were minted out of the emperor's own wealth. So it literally was his coin. Um, it was just a share of his wealth. And so Jesus is saying, give it back to him. Caesar has all the coins. Jesus doesn't have one. Jesus doesn't have a coin at all. So Jesus reframes the question. He says, just give it back to him. It's not important in that way, in the way they expected it. And I think that's one of my kind of takeaways thinking about this. In our day, people are always going to frame questions for us in ways that try to uh, frame the terms of the debate. People will try to trap you in polarized answers and responses today. You'll be invited to be, you know, for one side and against the other. You'll be invited to take a stance and a position on issues of politics or war or conflict, being for one side and against the other. You're always going to be invited uh, into that sort of polarized debate. You will have conversations with people who will try to trap you on questions of love, of sex, on identity. It's very much, again, uh, something that we're challenged by in the church at the moment. You'll have people who will say, well, isn't love just love is love? Can't you just, you know, if it's all love? And we might have to be canny, like Jesus, and work out when people are trying to as it were, trap us or get us to agree with their way of framing a debate or a question. We might have to change the terms of the question. I won't go off on a tangent about that. That'll be a sermon for another time. The question that the Pharisees and the Herodians are really asking, I think, is this. They're saying to Jesus, are you a revolutionary making a grab for power? And what kind of power do you want? Jesus, in his response, shows us a different approach to living in the world. Somebody once said that every revolution in this present age is no 
real revolution at all. It's just a changing of the players. And I think that's true and borne out when you look at history. Every revolution is a grab for power. It's a storyline. So I'm so oppressed, I'm so marginalized, I've been exploited. My people, my tribe, my nation, my language, my ethnicity. Um, it's time to throw down these rulers and we'll take their place. So much of history is defined that way. But the revolution of Jesus is to change the terms of engagement. Jesus becomes utterly despised and powerless. Even to the very point of being, as it were, rejected by God the Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' true revolutionary kingship is shown not by overthrowing the powers and taking a seat on the thrones, not by being elected, but by being executed. The power and the influence of political simplicity, those simple polarized binary answers, political complacency, either burying your head in the sand, keeping a, living a quiet life, or, or, or just taking your place in the pecking order, or political primacy, making, making politics everything, the only thing that really matters for a Christian. Well, that's not all there is. When we follow Jesus, the executed king, we follow a true revolutionary who breaks the power of these things so that we can live sacrificially for others. All other revolutions in human history have been about getting power. Jesus's revolution is about giving power for the sake of others. All the empires of the world are built upon blood taken, but the kingdom of God is built upon blood given, freely given for us. So Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr, or perhaps neither, perhaps reframing the terms of debate and allowing Jesus to draw us into a, a more complex way of engaging with the politics and the powers of this age, resisting complacency, quietism, but neither thinking that the politics and the powers of this age are all that matters because we follow the true revolutionary king, the one who gave his life for the sake of the world. Amen.